0: Well, there are many psalms that offer us comfort in times of trial. One of the great arguments for singing psalms, for reading the psalms and meditating upon them is that we might have our hearts inspired, that we might learn words that we can pray, comforting words during times of trial. And we find one such word as we we turn to Psalm 94 this morning. Verse 19, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. What a beautiful line because it it reminds us that God uses trials. He uses burdensome times and cares to remind us of his consolation for us, his care for us. Earlier in the psalm, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble. God, through times of trial, gives us rest out of troublesome days until a pit is dug for the wicked, that line continues. So what's, what's unique about Psalm 94, what I want to draw your attention to and orient you as we're about to read it here, is that our psalm teaches us how we are comforted by God's holiness and justice in times of trial. God, who is king, is ruling and reigning over his creation as judge. And even how this comfort is tied to our confidence in the coming judgment. The opening verses are praying for that coming judgment. Lord, God of vengeance, rise up. So as we read this text, my prayer is that you will draw comfort from it and that we will grow in our love of a holy and just God, a king who is also a judge, and have a greater and greater appreciation for his, how his precious promises comfort sinners in the face of such holiness. Um, so please rise now as we read Psalm 94. O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. That they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Can those who frame injustice by statute, they bend together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death? but the lord has become my stronghold and my god the rock of my refuge he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness the lord our god will wipe them out thus for the reading of god's holy word join me now in the prayer of illumination that's found in our bulletin our father we have heard wonderful things out of thy word we praise you for revealing christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words. For thy name's sake, amen. I don't know if you might have found the opening lines of our psalm a little jarring. Oh, Lord God of vengeance. Oh, God of vengeance, rise up. Um, It's common for us today to hear sermons about God's love. One of the most uh, popular campus ministries Uh, Once upon a time, often led their uh, appeal, uh, their evangelism, with the idea that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If we all just understood the love of God, we would be compelled. And indeed, steadfast love is one of God's key attributes. It is an essential part of Yahweh's character, his name which he proclaims at Mount Sinai to Moses. And we find it here in uh, this psalm in verse 18. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. The Apostle John tells us that God is love. And this love was manifest to us in that he sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. When Jesus came into the world, we were able to know, to understand the love of God more clearly than before. The grace and truth were revealed to us in Christ. And that makes the love of Jesus Christ, the central message of the church that proclaims Christ and him crucified. It's far less common, however, for us to hear about God's justice or his wrath as we do in these opening verses. Oh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. And many people would just frankly say that's a good thing. Again, that's passe. C.S. Lewis Uh, wrote a wonderful little book, Reflections on the Psalms. And he argues that God's wrath is is somewhat overdone in the Old Testament. We hear too much about it, and that we have a a, a happy and a healthy progression, even an evolution, as it were, to the New Testament church, which has a much uh, more focused message on the love of God. Now, I'm not complaining about Lewis, who's a wonderful scholar and a scholar of texts in particular, Um, but even a brilliant apologist... A faithful teacher such as Lewis, I think it gets this a little wrong. And this psalm tells us why. This psalm helps us understand the proper relationship between the holiness of God, God who is a judge, and the comfort that we experience as sinners uh, during times of trial and suffering. It calls us to faith, to trust in Yahweh who shows us how his coming judgment is a comfort to us, to believers in this broken world. It promises us rest from days of trouble. And that rest is, is tied to the idea that there is a pit being dug for the wicked to fall into. We can endure the attacks of the wicked. We can take comfort in the midst of them because we know they will reap what they sow. They will receive their just deserts, which is a key theme of this psalm. Because, because there is a great king in heaven who is a divine judge, who knows all and will repay them in full. If we lose sight of God's justice and holiness, as I'm afraid we do often in our day, then we lose a great source of Christian consolation. So I want to look at the argument of this psalm. Uh, It begins, and my first point is that the Lord is a God of vengeance. My second point is that fools don't believe that God will wipe them out for their wickedness, the folly of man who thinks that God is not a judge. And third and finally, how God's people are to be comforted by this coming judgment. So, first, the Lord is a God of vengeance. Now this section of the Psalter we've been looking at, especially Psalms 93 to 99, celebrates Yahweh as the king of all creation. It's it's mostly made up of of hymns, celebratory hymns. And this psalm is a little bit jarring, it's a little bit discordant from that theme. Um, But I'm going to try to show that it's it's actually integrally related. It actually advances uh, that theme. Even though it doesn't use the word king, it's calling upon God to act in a kingly way. Because to be a royal judge is to show forth your authority. It's the divine, the kingly prerogative. Many commentators argue that the the setting of Psalm 94 in this context really draws upon the Psalms around it. And there's a lot of common vocabulary, common imagery that the poet here and those who organized the Psalter into the collection we find today are explicitly linking the coming judgment with God as king and comfort for God's people during this time. There are um, numerous verbal linkages, I'll point out. But the theme of divine vengeance is present at the very end of our collection. In verse, uh, the end of Psalm 99. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them. So there's his mercy. But an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God. Worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Psalm 95 will recount the episode of of Israel in the wilderness at Massa and Meribah says, today, if you hear his voice, trust in him, look to him, obey him. If not, you will not enter your heavenly or your land of rest. In other words, as we sing praises to God, our king, based on his work in creation and redemption, Psalm 94 is teaching us the meaning of these praises. What does it mean to have a God who is a king, who rules and reigns over all the cosmos? Good theology, good and true knowledge about God has a practical benefit. It comforts us. And it also restrains us in our wickedness. Because the psalmist believes God is a holy God, a God of vengeance, a God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children, it raises a question. How long? God, you promised justice, but look at the world. This is a common lament and it's a faithful lament. It, within this lament, how long is confidence that God is holy? God will judge. Something's wrong right now that needs to be set right. The wicked here, as we read about them in verses 3 through 7, are portrayed as, as exalting, lifting themselves up. and They're doing a victory lap. Psalm 93 praised the Lord who is king, who is God most high. And this uses the same word for the wicked ones. They're lifting themselves up. They're elevating themselves. The wicked want to put themselves in the place of God. Like the serpent said to Eve, you shall be as gods. Another linkage with that previous psalm is that the wicked here are said to crush God's people. And remember in Psalm 93, we read about how God of creation uh, is over the waves and the seas, the crashing, crushing waves. It's the same word. The wicked people are portrayed here as, as this chaotic force, this element, that just like creation, God nevertheless is ruling and reigning over. The seas have their boundaries. They're kept in their place. And like the sea in Psalm 93, God is mightier, God is higher, God is stronger. And yet still they boast. They spew out arrogance when they speak. They vaunt themselves in the word of one translation. And before I move on to the second point, their their ignorance of God's holiness, it's important to note that the New Testament, despite uh, revealing the fullness of God's love in Christ, doesn't abandon God's holiness, doesn't stop speaking of the vengeance of God. Paul alludes to this psalm in the language of First Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. That's a clear allusion. To this psalm. As we told you beforehand. And solemnly warned you. The Lord is an avenger. He's the judge of the earth. And this stands as a warning. For believers and unbelievers alike. In uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Psalm 95. Which we'll see next week. uh, Where the people did not believe the Lord in the wilderness. And it kept them from entering their rest. In the land of rest. Is issued as a warning to the church. To Christians that they not fall and drift away from their faith. Our New Testament lesson today, Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us that the wrath of God is coming. And what's unique about the New Testament is that uh, Christians are not and must never be the instruments of this wrath. That's the new thing here that Paul is pointing to. No longer does uh, the people of God in in the form of the state of Israel have the sword to punish sinners and evildoers and foreigners. The sword is given to the secular state in Romans 13. And so there is a sense here where the church adopts a new message, a new role, a new mission. We repay no one evil for evil. We live peaceably with all. Because God's wrath has been poured out on Christ. These references, of course, in the New Testament could be multiplied. The book of Revelation, elsewhere. It's a gross mischaracterization and twisting of the gospel. To say that God's justice, His vengeance, and His wrath against sin are no longer present. Or not even a significant part of the good news. They are indeed... The premise of the good news. We are called to repent. You are called to repent. Because what? The kingdom of God is at hand. The just and holy king is coming. And it is here. Judgment is coming. And God most high is about to shine forth in his powerful, mighty glory as he did at Mount Sinai. And all who did not take shelter in the blood of the lamb will be filled with fear and terror. Such that they will call on the rocks of the earth to bury them in that day of judgment, so we must not let go of the the core message of this psalm. But the psalm further teaches us, and it takes a very um, a, a tone of wisdom, a tone of instruction. Uh, and the second point is that fools don't understand; they don't believe that this judgment is real and is coming. Notice what verse seven teaches us: teaches us, wickedness flows from bad theology. They say the Lord does not see; the God of Jacob does not perceive. The wicked foolishly think there's no judge in heaven. There's a judge, maybe, but he doesn't know. He doesn't see. He's not looking right now. He's a doddering old fool. They think no one knows what's going on in their minds, in their hearts, their ambition, their lies, their deception, their cheating. And they practice so much without even thinking of it. And verse 8 to 11 presents a very beautiful picture, again, tying God's judging activity His rule as kingly judge to his work in creation. Whereas, um, uh, we see this, right? Who planted the ear? Don't you think he can hear? He formed the eye. Don't you understand that he sees all? The message of wisdom, that the smallness and brevity, the vanity of life comes through here. He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Every thought that passes through your brain, through your mind, passes through a mind that was made and fashioned by God. Even evil, even corruption of his good work is not beyond his knowledge and understanding. And these thoughts are but a breath. We see here the the deep connection between God as creator and God as judge. The Lord reigns, he's robed in majesty, Psalm 93. The Lord is robed, he's put on strength. The world is established, it shall never be moved. Your throne, that place from which you rule, is established and you are everlasting. And the essence of this message of God's holiness is that we get, apart from his grace and mercy, we get our just deserts. We reap what we sow. See verse 23, the conclusion here. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. There is a key word here, repeated at the beginning, in the middle, and the end of our psalm. And um, helpfully or unhelpfully, it's, it's translated differently. But it's this idea of repaying or bringing back these iniquities. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Verse 2. Repay to the proud what they deserve. That's what the psalmist asks for. And here he says, he will bring back on them. Same verb. It will turn God, God will turn back on them their wicked deeds. It's also presented in this idea that we see elsewhere in the Psalter. That the the wicked are are digging a pit. They're trying to trap us. But they're going to fall into their own pit. It's the sort of ironic sense that wickedness is its own reward. It brings its own reward with it. But we see this same idea in the opposite sense in the center of our psalm, verse 15. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. In the great redistribution, in the great settling of accounts, the wicked will get what they deserve and earned. And the righteous, God's people, will receive Their blessing. They will receive justice. This cry of how long will finally uh, be answered. Now, there is a point of application here for believers. Uh, We can act like practical atheists. When we sin or are tempted, uh, we we rarely hold in our minds at the same time that sinful thought or temptation and the idea that that God is there, right? Seeing, hearing, knowing what we're doing. Um, When I was a child, you know, sometimes you're playing a game. And, um, of course, I never did this, but like my brothers and sisters and cousins, you know, sometimes you, you cheat a little bit at the game. You set the dice a little bit differently. But no one's looking. You don't know, right? Well, if you get away with it, it's okay. But this lesson teaches us that God is the one who always knows. He's the perfect referee. Recently had a, a debate with some friends about, uh, I think it was some folks from the church here, right? Is it all right? To, uh, to pretend to be fouled if you're playing like in a soccer match. Is it alright to flop? Or is that a lie? Or is it part of the rules of the game? To work the referee, right? We can't work the divine referee. God has perfect instant replay. And <laughs> I don't even support instant replay. But it's true, it is true, that even for believers, this knowledge is important. It's important for our doctrine, children to know, you can't cheat God. He knows, he sees. Adults, parents, (laughs) he hears what you say to your kids when no one else is there. Now, while this is true, I think ultimately we're not sanctified as believers by the knowledge that there's a judge who's going to pay us back. We're not sanctified by God's law. It is a warning and a threat. Ultimately, what we are sanctified by is the Holy Spirit of Christ which dwells in us. And which gives us the mind of Christ, the the perspective of our Heavenly Father on our sins. Helps us to grow in despising our sins and turning from them. Gives us a new heart and a new will. We turn from them more and more. But I think it's important for us to see here. So so the psalmist isn't saying that, that it's the threats of God that keep us in the right. And yet we are instructed to grow in love for God's holy law. We are instructed about what the fruit of wickedness is. When you go around digging pits for people, you're going to fall in them. He's addressing here, the psalmist, the dullest of the people. This is an interesting expression, and it leads some commentators to think that he's talking not merely about foreigners or enemies. Not the the peoples out there, but the dullest and the fools within the household of God, within Israel. The rulers, the kings, and we know there were many wicked kings, right? The priests and false prophets who abuse their offices. We see that as well in this idea that not only are these wicked rulers claiming to be allied with God, but they're framing injustice by statute. They're not just acting wickedly, they're actually making wicked laws. We've all experienced that in the Christian church, haven't we? It was a wicked law that was applied to drive nails into the hands of our Savior. We know that there are wicked laws today which... Uh, freely allowed people to to take their lives and assisted suicide to lead to the abortion of children. That is a level of wickedness this psalm teaches, which exceeds even our human frailty. And brothers and sisters, the third point here is that we are comforted. We can and may and should be comforted that there is a King in heaven. That there is a just and holy judge who sees all and knows all and will set all things to right. The turning point of our psalm, as so often is the case, comes in this central stanza, verses 12 through 15. So look there with me, if you will. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. You see there this wonderful blessing and promise in the midst of a of a sinful and chaotic and broken world, and it calls to mind not only uh, wisdom uh, instruction that we see in Proverbs and other Psalms, where there's the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. This is the, the the pattern of Psalm one, right? And it's quoting Psalm one here. Blessed is the man. This is the blessing that the whole Psalter is holding forth. Blessed is the man, and this word for blessing is is happy, rejoicing. Uh, Doctor Godfrey who we've had as a guest here at this church. and um, One of my favorite preachers uh, found one of his sermons on this psalm this week. And the title of the sermon was How to Be Happy. And he said, I'm sure you all thought that that must have been a typo in the bulletin that I'm going to preach a sermon on how to be happy. He's like, you might think this is kind of Calvinist happiness, right? We're happy in the coming judgment of God. But this is what we see in the New Testament, that we rejoice we rejoice always. The Apostle Paul says rejoice in sufferings. Know that these sufferings, and you notice what's said here, the man whom the Lord disciplines, whom he is teaching, that sufferings lead to endurance, which leads to character, which leads to hope. Hope and a coming judgment and deliverance from our trials. First Peter says rejoice and this, in your sufferings, that they will produce a tested genuineness of your faith. Rejoice. Colossians 124. James 1. Count it all joy when you meet trials. The church was not promised a happiness of ease and rest and peace. We are promised, however, joy, rejoicing, delight even in and even as we're made like Christ in his sufferings. One commentator has pointed out that these four verses are not only central to this psalm, but they appear to be at almost the exact center of this section of psalms, psalms 90 to 99. The idea that Yahweh is king has at its core this blessing. That we have rest from days of trouble. Let me read briefly. I rarely read from commentaries, but... These psalms were intended for the flagging faith of Israelites who were living under long, continued evil days. Days that were passed in God's wrath. They talked about that in Psalm 90. When the vision of the future had grown dim. When hope had waned for God's people. Some had turned to cruel and violent ways, making common cause with foreign oppressors, disdaining the power of Yahweh. Thus, these psalms are designed to revitalize faith and create a new awareness of the kingship of Yahweh. Not like, yeah, 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 God's king, but God is king. Rejoice! You are blessed. Be taught by His royal decrees that are forever And again, remember, the kingship that the Psalter often held forth in Psalm 2 was the kingship of the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, it was the Davidic kingship. And book 3 showed that kingship falling apart. His throne was in the dust, Psalm 89. But Yahweh's throne, in contrast, was established from of old, for he is from everlasting. He shall never be moved. He is no human king, no human representative In verse 20, we see the same word for wicked thrones, wicked rulers who frame their injustice by statutes. They not only wickedly break the law, but they make wicked law. Brothers and sisters, there's no greater tragedy. And we see it today, right? There are churches that make and approve wicked laws. There are churches that lobby. Big kerfuffle erupted in uh, one of the churches in my mom's hometown out In Lake Tahoe, where she worships, uh, when the minister got up and said, um, in the wake of recent happenings in abortion law in our land at the Supreme Court, said that if she got pregnant, she was going to have an abortion. Because it was an important fundamental right of hers. That's wicked. The psalmist turns our attention in the midst of this wickedness back to the opening of the Psalter. To the central theme of the entire book of the Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. But what does he do? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And in Psalm 2. The same blessing is on the one who kisses the son. Blessed are all who take refuge. And that's the son of the king in heaven. Who's been put on the throne. The Messiah. Yahweh who is king. Issues royal decrees that are very trustworthy. And those who look to him, who are disciplined by him, who are taught by God's law, gives us rest from days of trouble. Now, it's important for us to note, and I have saw this in some of the readings of this psalm in the history of the church and in the commentaries, that the psalmist is not saying here that we are saved because we follow God's law. We're not saved by our obedience, by our own righteousness. And I'm not just a a reformed Protestant reading this back into a text and forcing it in with a, a shoehorn. The comfort here in this psalm and throughout the Psalter comes from the fact that we are God's people. How does the law begin, which we read today, Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I have rescued you. I have freed you. I have purchased you. God delivered His people from their own ignorance, their own folly. And He's teaching them there at the mountain what the way of His holiness looks like. One key to our psalm is that twice here, in verses 5 and verse 15, we are called His heritage. This is covenant language, Psalm uh, 94, 5. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage, your possession. Your precious people. Verse 14, the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. He has a claim on us. And the essence of steadfast love that is held forth here in verse 18, the essence of steadfast love is that it is pledged love, committed love, obligated love. Those of you who are married know what it means to be married and to love a spouse in pledged, committed, obligated, covenant love. It means you love when you don't feel like it. It means you love your spouse when you're not in the mood to. And these two things are not in contrast with one another. We need God's covenant bond to confirm us in our committed love. There's something higher and more beautiful In a love which says, no matter what life throws at us, or my spouse throws at me, (laughs) no matter, I will love this person in word, in action. If not in thought and desire, I'll pray for God's help in loving her. And that's God's love to us. He committed before the foundation of the world, before he created the material world, Jesus Pledged a vow, an oath to die for those who would sin. To die for his children. Children of the church, God doesn't love you because you do what he says when your parents aren't looking. He loves you because he's your father and you are his children. It's the same way your parents love you. You know this. Your parents discipline you not so that you'd be good enough that they might love you. <laughs> they discipline you out of love and care and compassion for you. We have been adopted in Christ Jesus. And he sees the perfect obedience of his dear son when he looks at us, even when we wander and stray. The psalmist is reminding us that the Lord blesses his children in and through their trials. The law and the evil ones around us The difficulty, the suffering we experience humbles us, draws us closer to him. And during these days of trouble, we can be confident that the Lord will not forsake us. He will not abandon us. King Jesus is still in charge. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things isn't it amazing that in the gospel the god who was king of all creation has owns everything right figured out a way to give something up he gave up his son and in doing so he he set a value a measure on his love for us he who gave us his son will give us everything And as surely as the wicked will reap what they sow, they will fall into the pits they are digging for their enemies. So surely will justice and righteousness and peace and shalom flow to you, his people, those who are saints by faith in Jesus Christ. So the king who is enthroned in the world he established will surely bring the world to a just and holy conclusion. But our comfort isn't only in a future where things will be set to right. And look briefly with me before we close at verse 16 through 19. The Lord preserves and protects and consoles us in and through our trials. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. That's death. This individual had faced a near-death experience. When I thought my foot slips... Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Even in the midst of the trials, not just future hope or comfort, present hope. God is with us. And we know this because Christ was with us. Because Christ suffered not only with us, but for us. the language of foot slipping here is not uncommon. It is also a part of the opening verses of book 3, the previous book that showed Israel in such chaos, right? As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Book 3 shows Israel and God's anointed, the kings of Israel, the people of Israel, stumbling, falling. But the same word for slipping here is used to speak of God. The king, the Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty in Psalm 93. The Lord is robed. The world which he has established shall never be moved. It will not slip. You see, the king is the one who sets things on foundations in an immovable way. And so we follow not only a logical argument procession. There's a God who's a creator. He's creator over all things. And so that makes me feel better. And I can have hope and confidence in the future. Yes, that's good. That might appeal to some of you. But what poetry does, what psalms do, is give us pictures for our heart. Pictures of God ruling and reigning over creation. We might meditate on Yahweh, our glorious King, even as we we sing through these psalms, these precious psalms in this section. That we might know what it is, not only for the world not to slip and shake, the mountains to tumble into the sea, but for the moral order of His creation to be firm. Perhaps you watch a presidential debate and think wow <laughs> right what a weird crazy political world we live in maybe you think one side's worse or different than the other maybe that's true i'm not claiming moral equivalents right but it's all shifting sands here on earth god the king is ruling and reigning above We're going to draw this series, this section of our series, to a close next week with Psalm 95 and return to Ephesians chapter 4. But the closing verses here tie us in, kick us off into Psalm 95, because it reminds us that God is our rock and our refuge. Let's close with these lines. The Lord has become my stronghold, my God, the rock of my refuge, and he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Let's pray. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, when we lift our eyes up to heaven, we know that we are sinners and we are humbled by your holiness. And yet we come boldly into your presence through the blood and wine of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We celebrate this great sacrifice and moral reordering of all creation in this meal as we partake and become members of his flesh and blood family members your heritage your inheritance and we know that all who sit and sup here are under your protection as our great heavenly father and king judge ruler come quickly dear lord reveal your holiness in all its glory and power and yet in the meantime, let our foot not slip or stumble. Be with us through your Son and through his Spirit. In whose name we pray. Amen.